and gentlemen, introducing the new Gen Green show, starring the new Gen Green. Good evening, everybody. Today, we have a special guest that we will be interviewing. It is the Dr. Stanton Lance, who is a professor, author, and tobacco control activist. He was a faculty member at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, where he was a professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology the American Legacy Foundation Distinguished Professor of Tobacco Control, former director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education. And tonight we have him here on the show. It is wonderful to have you here. How, how are you today, Dr. Glantz? Oh, I'm totally fine. Good. And today we are also on the call with Madam President Chelsea. Chelsea, say hi. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here. We're very excited to have Dr. Glantz here today. It's going to be a great interview. So I, I guess to begin, I already put out a pretty long description, but Dr. Glantz, how would you describe yourself? Well, I think you you hit it pretty well. I'm a uh... I spent 45 years on the faculty at UCSF and uh, where I did research on cardiovascular function and then moved into tobacco. Um, I also taught statistics. And uh, one thing I did, which a lot of people don't know about is I spent 34 years on something called the California State Scientific Review Panel on toxic air contaminants, which uh, plays a very central role in uh, air pollution regulation. And there I worked on uh, the risk assessment for diesel exhaust, which uh, has led to a lot of uh, regulations about diesel and cleaning up the air. And the last big thing I worked on was something a chemical called copyrifiros, which is a really nasty reproductive toxicant which uh, the work we did uh, ended up getting it banned in California. Obama had moved to restrict it and then Trump unbanned it. But uh, California, in, you know, who has a history of striking its own way on environmental issues, uh, said, no, this is bad stuff. And before that, I was a rocket scientist. I actually helped put men on the moon. I worked for the space agency in the 60s before I went to graduate school. Holy cow. I I didn't hear about that that uh that first part. You're you're quite prolific. Yeah, well, if you live long enough, you get to do lots of stuff, you know. <laughs> Nicely said. So we're actually talking to a rocket scientist, everybody. That's very exciting. Yeah, that's right. So when I say this isn't rocket science, I actually know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yes. That's very exciting. And then out of curiosity, Dr. Glantz, what do you like to do for fun? I know that you're retired now. How, how have you been spending your time? Well, I'm retired, but I tell people I'm retired, but I'm not dead. And I'm still doing some work, mostly on e-cigarettes. And, uh, and policies around e-cigarettes. Uh, but uh, um, I really like backpacking. And uh, we did a great, just in, uh, about a, earlier this month or last month now, a great week-long trip up in Yosemite to a place called Vernon Lake and Rancheria Falls. 
And uh, we had taken our kids backpacking when they were really little. And so this trip, my kids brought their kids. And so we all spent spent a week in the woods. It was fantastic. I like biking. Yeah, that's awesome. And I like traveling till COVID shut everything down. But, you know, maybe maybe we'll get to go somewhere. Hopefully. Hopefully things will start getting back to normal pretty soon. We'll we'll yeah. see. Yeah, slowly it's happening. Yes, exactly. And then we just kind of wanted to start out with, you know, got a description of who you are, you know, what you do. You've done so, so many amazing things in your life. Um, and obviously, yeah, after, you know, we focus on tobacco industry and tobacco control so we were just interested how um if you can explain how you began working in tobacco control how did you get to that work well how long an answer do you want as long as you want to give us one (laughs) now that's a dangerous thing to say to me because my my wife says some people talk to breathe and or, or breathe to talk and i talk to breathe but um you know, my first interest in, in this, I, I was born in uh, 1946 and grew up in the 50s. So that was sort of before there was a very broad um, appreciation of tobacco as a health problem. But my mother had a very severe asthma. I remember uh, when I was in, in uh, you know, probably still in elementary school, uh, her taking me with her to for a doctor's appointment and the, and the doctor said you know if you don't stop smoking you're wasting my time and your money trying to deal with your asthma which was for the time a very very progressive uh position and uh you know that kind of obviously made a strong impression on me and sensitized me um, as the you know, the Surgeon General's report came out in, in 1964, and there was the development of the very early anti-smoking messaging. Uh, a guy named Tony Schwartz, who is a very famous um, uh, uh, advertising guy, uh, uh, made some really memorable ads uh, about smoking that made a very strong impression on me. Probably the most famous of them was an actor uh, named Yul Brenner, who was a very famous actor at the time. And he looked straight into the camera and said, uh, if you see this ad, it's because I'm dead and smoking killed me. And, uh, you know, so I was sort of sensitized to that. I never liked cigarette smoke. You know, when I was in high school, I was a nerd and I knew that even Marlboro's wouldn't wouldn't uh, help me. I had a little bit of asthma probably from breathing my parents' secondhand smoke. And, uh, you know, I really, you know, I was sort of, it was something I was quite aware of. And uh, what happened, um, uh, you know, I, I started getting formally involved in, in the issue when I was uh, uh, actually a postdoctoral fellow um, at UCSF. I got my PhD at Stanford and then went up to UCSF uh, to continue doing research. And I was kind of fed up with academia at that point. You know, I just felt like I was spending my whole time sitting in a room writing stuff that I didn't think anybody would care about. And, you know, I... I uh, um, 
And so at the time, there was a new program, which actually I played a little bit of a role in, in establishing, called the American Association for the Advancement of Science Congressional Science Fellowship, where you could, scientists could go apply and then spend a, war, a year or two years, I think, working in Congress. And the whole idea was to bring scientific advice into the into the legislative process, which at that point was a really radical idea. There was really nothing, no, I mean, the whole superstructure we have for providing that kind of advice to Congress and government generally was much less developed than it is now. And um, I made it into the finals. And the, uh, the way that they, uh, rather than just having an interview to select the, the final people, they sent you a list of science-based policy questions and you were given two days to write a briefing. And then they flew you back to Washington and you did the briefing at, to a mock senator and that was your interview. And it, it really, it shows you how much things have changed because in this whole long list of things are all the supersonic transport and all kinds of environmental things and defense issues and all kinds of stuff like that. And there was only one question that had anything to do with health. And at that point, I was at UCSF and it was a very parochial place at the time. Our library was a medical library. It didn't, you know, have the, you know, general, you know, stuff about military policy or, 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 uh, or tra transit policy. And the only question on there I had a prayer of researching in two days was a proposal that Senator Kennedy was making to tax the nicotine content of cigarettes as a way to um, to discourage smoking. And uh, I went down to the library. It was in the basement then. And, and the research on what's called smoker compensation was just coming online then. And what smoker compensation is, is because people are addicted to nicotine and their brains get adjusted to expect a certain amount of nicotine in their blood, if you lowered the nicotine delivery, it would make people smoke more or smoke more intensely to get the nicotine levels up to what their brain was used to. So I wrote this passionate briefing paper that taxing the nicotine content of cigarettes was stupid because it would just lead people to smoke more. And I flew back to Washington and I wore the one suit I had, which my wife had made for me to get married in, which was orange, uh, which is really not what you do in Washington, DC, you know? And so I, I, I basically broke two rules. One is I wore an orange suit. And the second thing was I said the Senator was wrong and this was a dumb idea. So I didn't get the fellowship. And I, I was all crestfallen and went back to UC and, it, you know, things worked out well for me. I ended up a professor and running the tobacco center and doing lots of other good things. But that, what I argued we should do instead was try to reduce the social acceptability of smoking. I didn't quite word it that way, but if you read the, in hindsight, that's what it said. And so that was in about 1972. And then I went back to studying cardiovascular function and writing papers about 
about the lining of arteries and things like that. And, and in 1978, there was an initiative here in California called Proposition 5, which was an effort to pass what by today's standards would be considered ridiculously weak restrictions on where you could smoke. Um, it was called the uh, California Clean Indoor Air Act, but it didn't ban smoking. It just said you had to have a no smoking area. So you could have, if you had a room, you could have the smokers on the left side and the non-smokers on the right side, and that would be in compliance with this initiative. But it just seemed to me a good idea. As I said, I had a little asthma. I didn't like secondhand smoke. And I showed up at this meeting uh, to volunteer, expecting to lick envelopes and walk precincts and you know, do the scout work you do in a political campaign. And I took this thing I'd written a few years earlier for this competition in Washington and showed it to Paul Loveday and Peter Hanauer, who were the two lawyers running the campaign. And they were just blown away by it because that was just as the research on secondhand smoke was really starting to gel. Here you had a couple of lawyers who were trying to muddle through the scientific literature and figure out what it said. And here I was, a real scientist, who could read that stuff and translate it into English for them. So I very quickly ended up in the campaign leadership, uh, although Paul did take me out and picked out a blue suit for me to wear in media appearances. And, you know, and... and uh, I ended up in, in, among the half a dozen or so people who ran this state campaign back then. And in fact, Paul and I wrote the ballot argument, which went in the ballot pamphlet because we didn't have enough money to hire a professional to do it. And we started out way ahead. The pub, Even then, even in 1978, which was before most of the science was, was anywhere near as mature as it is now, People really didn't like breathing secondhand smoke. It was viewed as indoor air pollution. And the interesting thing was, if you looked at polling that the tobacco companies did, which we've since gotten our hands on, even way back then, there was a very strong consensus people had a right to breathe clean air, that they shouldn't have to breathe secondhand smoke. But in the surveys, when they asked people, well, what do you think about it? Do you really think people have a right to breathe clean air? And should smoking indoors be banned? Only about 30% of the people thought everybody thought that. So you had this disconnect between what people wanted and what people thought people wanted. So even though there was this very strong social consensus, that we, you know, that people wanted to breathe clean air indoors. Because remember, this is also when the environmental movement was really getting going. The, the, the Federal Clean Air Act had only recently passed. There was, a, you know, Earth Day was a new thing back then. And, you know, in fact, the strongest base of support we got for the campaign came from environmental groups like the Sierra Club much more than some of the health groups because they were all afraid that, well, the science wasn't settled yet and they didn't want to offend smokers and things like that. So that's how I, you know, and, and so I spent the next few years, you know, working on it as a sort of advocate and 
translating other people's science into English from the public and the media and policymakers. And then later started doing research on it myself and ended up doing some of the early work linking secondhand smoke to heart disease. And in fact, I recently, for other reasons, went back and looked up one of the first papers we wrote, really arguing for a connection between secondhand smoke and heart disease. And that paper's been cited almost a thousand times. And for those of you yeah. who aren't academic nerds, most academic papers are the, the median number of citations is zero. And if you get a hundred, that's a lot. So, you know, it, 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 it ended up being a place where somebody with my technical background could do work that had a very high level of relevance to, you know, an active policy. And, you know, uh, the campaigns, we had the one in 1978. We started out very far ahead. We were about three to one ahead in the polling before the tobacco companies started their just saturation advertising campaign. And they beat it. They spent uh, $6 million, which back then was a lot of money. And we spent about $500,000. And in the end, we lost, I think it was uh, 54.46 or 52.48. So the industry beat us down. But we still did remarkably well, given what we were up against. And the most important thing that came out of this was, you know, one of the what, how do you run a political campaign, an initiative campaign in California? I mean, I learned a lot about election politics. And that is, I mean, this is generally true for even for candidates, is it's very rare for people to change their mind during an election campaign. You know, people's attitudes are pretty well baked in. And so what you do in a campaign is you go out and you poll people and you see what they think. That's why politicians and campaigns are always polling people. And then you say, okay, well, we, we know that you think this. And so because you think that, that's why you should vote my way. That's, that's the, the kind of standard way you run one of these campaigns. Well, the tobacco companies knew from their polling, and we got a hold of some of this, that people really didn't like secondhand smoke, that people thought people had a right to breathe clean air. And so they couldn't go out there and run ads saying, protect your right to breathe formaldehyde and benzopyrene and benzene and, and particulate matter and nicotine and all those poisons, vote no on five. So what they said was, well, secondhand smoke is a problem. You kind of recognize the problem. And, but they said, but Proposition 5 just isn't the answer. The answer is flawed. And again, that's the standard no campaign you run an initiative where, where you're opposing something that's very popular. You should say, okay, we agree, we, we agree with you that it's a problem, but this is the wrong solution. And what came out of that 1978 campaign, even though we lost, was it really put the issue of clean indoor air and secondhand smoke on the public agenda in California? And it, it 
generated a huge amount of public awareness and public knowledge about the issue. And, and all of the debate really engaged the public. And that really laid the foundation for all the successes that we've had since then. All while wearing an orange suit. Yeah, yeah. Well, orange is my favorite color. Oh, I'm not dissing you. You know, what one of the no, I didn't wear the I didn't wear the orange suit. I wasn't allowed to wear the orange suit on TV or anything. <laughs> no, I'm 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 inspired. If anything, yeah, I'm I'm inspired. Well, you know, you were the first person on this program who who has their own wikipedia page so you know you many would call you the founder of tobacco control yeah um, i think i mean that's very flattering and lots of people say that but i i think it's i mean i i'm not saying i haven't contributed a lot i have but i don't think i there were people doing it long before i was uh you know, I got involved in this. There were the people like Peter Hanauer and Paul Loveday who were the people who recruited me. So, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I got lots of awards, and I mean, the tobacco companies certainly don't like me. If you go, you know, Google me, you'll find out what a horrible human being I am. But you know, I, I don't think it's fair to say I founded this stuff. Uh, you know, I, I came in and I, I would, I. I, I played an important role in pushing things forward. And, it, you know, because again, I had a, a kind of the, the perfect background for this issue because I was doing biomedical research. My undergraduate training and graduate training was actually in engineering and I had an economics minor. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, if, it's just the perf. I had the perfect set of technical skills to work on the clean indoor air issue. Where you know, for because like one of the things that tobacco companies claim for years as well, secondhand smoke isn't a problem. It's just that we we need better ventilation, for example. And so I I said, well, I know all about airflow and stuff like that, and that's just baloney. So. Typical tobacco industry baloney. Yeah, yeah. You know, another thing the industry does is they, they go find some famous people they can buy off. And on this is Al Sharpton, the, the African-American activist. And they're flying him and a few other kind of, uh, you know, well-known people in the Black community around saying, oh, this is going to lead to crime and police beating up Black people and all that. And it's just ridiculous. I mean, the real people who are abusing black people are the cigarette companies because they use flavored products, particularly menthol, to target African-Americans, to target Hispanics, to target women, to target LGBTQ people. And it's like, it's like, you know, the companies are the real oppressors here. You know, that's why you have higher death rates or one of the reasons you have higher death rates for these tobacco induced diseases in the African-American community than you do in the population as a whole. It's because they are targeted with these campaigns and they're very pernicious. They are. They are. We had someone on, I think, our first episode who especially did 
uh, I think the work on the menthol band, another city. And yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same basic message of no, the if the regulators do this, then it'll only lead to X and Y and Z, except now it just picks up whatever language uh, that is in the in the public sphere, like racial injustice, and then it turns yeah. it around just to make it yeah. something else. Well, that's right. And uh, it's just baloney. That's why uh, the GAFT Coalition's here, and that's why we love having you on here and helping us out. Sure. You know, we, we're, we're, little, we're, we're little helpers on uh, guiding people the right way. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing that you're doing that I think is very important, and I have to say I'm very disappointed that groups like the Heart Association, the Cancer Society, and the Lung Association haven't really gotten on board, is tobacco is an environmental problem. Because it's a gigantic environmental problem. I mean, disintegrated cigarette butts are the main, the biggest single source of plastic out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They're hugely um, uh, toxic environmental problems. E-cigarettes are are just horrible. You're just throwing away all these lithium-ion batteries and all this plastic and heavy metals. And they have just refused to get involved in these, you know, trying to deal with the environmental aspects of tobacco use. Also, tobacco uh, growing is a main source of deforestation uh, in Africa and uh, places like Brazil. And growing tobacco is really hard on the land. It's an environmentally terrible product. And there's also a lot of human rights issues. There's, if There's a lot of child labor involved. And, uh, you know, they, they've taken this very narrow view that, well, but that's not a health effect. You know, we just want to talk about health effects. But, I mean, the state, the state health department has been doing, you know, excellent public education around this. And it's a strong motivating message. It's a strong cessation message for young people to bring up, to raise these environmental issues. So they're meaningful in their own right. And they're also, um, I think, effective at, you know, helping prevent people from using tobacco products and helping them quit. So I've, I've given them a hard time for um, being so narrow in their thinking. It's for, but again, if you go back to 1978, when I first got involved, we had a lot, I mean, I'm not saying that the Cancer Society and the Lung Association weren't involved. They were, but in terms of on-the-ground help, the Sierra Club was, was a lot more engaged in dealing with the clean indoor air issue and really picked up on the idea of cigarette smoke indoors as air pollution um, than the health groups by and large did. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you go indoors and you smoke one cigarette, in a typical indoor environment, you violate the Federal Clean Air Act for outdoor air. They're just amazingly strong uh, pollution sources. Oh my gosh. Well, you've opened up three different uh, 
topics we really like to talk about. So, sure. uh, Chelsea, you want to carry the ball with uh, some of what Dr. Glantz has said about the environmental impact of uh, cigarettes? Yes, yes. I was just about to say, we have a question for you <laughs> actually sure. asking, you know, because, um, you know, like you said, yeah, we really try to focus on the environmental burden created by the tobacco industry. So we were just right. wondering, you've already kind of talked about it, but what are some of your thoughts on the tobacco industry's effect on our planet? If you want to like expand on that a little bit more. Well, we've we've actually done some research on that. Um, I mean, there are others who've done more, but we've done a little. I mean, the uh, the, the when first of all they do chop down a lot of forests to get the land to grow the tobacco. They they make heavy use of fertilizers and pesticides. Um, the tobacco itself, the tobacco plant is very hard on the soil, and so it tends to wreck the land for other crops. Um, then uh, when you harvest it, in order to cure it, you burn a lot of wood and, and generate pollution that way. And then uh, when you take the manufactured product, the cigarette filters, which don't really do anything for health. They're, they're a scam uh, that was developed as a way to try to reassure health-concerned smokers. The filters are made out of plastic. It's very, it's kind of like cotton candy made out of plastic. And those microfibers, when you, when you throw the cigarette away, it ends up you know, getting into the water, getting into land, getting into the ocean and falling. They don't biodegrade. They fall apart. And in fact, you know, one of the other important things I did was um, in 1994, I got a box of purloined tobacco industry, internal tobacco industry documents and put them on the Internet. And that collection is now almost 100 million pages. At the, it's all online at the UCSF library. If you go to idl.ucsf.edu, that's idl.ucsf.edu. You can troll through the tobacco documents. And, you know, the company spent a lot of money in the 70s, I think, trying to develop a biodegradable cigarette filter because they knew this was going to become an issue and it was just they just couldn't do it it just didn't work and so you know there's keep america beautiful which you've probably heard of which is this anti-litter organization they actually created that to try to do, say well the problem is people throwing cigarette butts on the ground not the fact that they're manufactured in an environmentally unsustainable way and um and if you, in fact, I remember, I mean, this is probably 30 years ago, because it was before we built a tobacco center at UCSF, which was 20 or 22 years ago, it was still when I had my, uh, my, uh, my old, I was probably maybe, maybe 35 years ago. And I'm sitting in my office, just looking out the window, and I get a phone call from Caltrans wanting to talk to me and I thought why is Caltrans calling me you know I mean 
I I mean, I don't know anything about building roads or, you know, bridges. I mean, actually, I do from a, starting out an engineer, but not really. And it turned, they said that the biggest problem they were having with culverts getting clogged up and flooding was cigarette butts. And and yes. what did I know? You know, what did I think about that? And you know, what what could be done to reduce the amount of cigarette butts being you know thrown out of cars and getting washed down and blocking these culverts and and causing road damage? So this is an old problem. And if you fast forward today and you look at the new products like e-cigarettes and the heated tobacco products. Those are way worse than a cigarette in terms of an environmental problem because they're, they're it's e-waste. You've got plastic, you've got heavy metals, you've got lithium-ion battery, and and those things when they're used up, they just get thrown thrown away too, and end up if you're lucky, they end up in the waste stream, but a lot of them probably just end up in the ocean. So, you know, those are, they're terrible environmental problems. And the tobacco companies responded to this or started responding to this around 20 years ago by giving money to environmental organizations and trying to make common cause with them so they could greenwash what they were doing, which is generally, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like buying off some leaders in the black community in order to clear the way for them to be promoting menthol cigarettes. And, you know, one of the big problems, getting back to the menthol issue and the flavor ban, was the tobacco companies gave a lot of money to the Congressional Black Caucus, to the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, the Urban League, the historically black, black colleges, black newspapers, and basically shut them up so they would have a clear a clear path to do all this targeted marketing directed at African Americans. And they did the same thing with Hispanics. They did the same thing with the LGBT community. And um, they also, you know, did their best to shut up the environmental community. So yeah, that's a it, I think. It, it it's a very it's a substantively very important issue in terms of environmental pollution. It's also, as I said, there's good research out there showing that increasing awareness of this problem is is a that is a more potent reason for kids not to smoke than telling them they're going to get sick. It's like with the secondhand smoke issue. A lot of the tobacco companies did a great job of educating the smokers that to just not care about the risks of smoking to themselves. But it's a total, it's one thing for me to say, I'm gonna smoke and I don't care if I kill myself. You know, I mean it may be a stupid thing to say, but at least I it's you know, I have agency. I'm killing myself but you really have to be a, a really bad person to say i don't care if i'm killing somebody else 
And what ended up happening with the second hand, we, when we started the work on clean indoor air, we just wanted to get rid of secondhand smoke. We didn't, we, you know, our view was if people wanted to smoke, good for them. Just do it in a way which doesn't hurt anybody else. But it turns out that is a, a hugely powerful message to get people to quit smoking because most smokers are nice people and they don't want to be hurting other people. And so the message you're hurting somebody else is a much more salient message in terms of behavior change than saying you're hurting yourself. And the same kind of situation exists with these environmental issues where, you know, concern about the, uh, the planet, concern about the greater good and and the public as a whole and the, and and the fish and all this other stuff that is actually a stronger motivating message with youth than saying if you smoke you're going to get cancer in 30 years yeah i think that's something that we've noticed in our group as well that youth tend to focus more on the environmental impacts and really see it as a larger issue. Because I think most young people, I think Johnny and I know, we have to deal with the repercussions of all of the the years and years of environmental damage caused right. by the tobacco industry. So I think it's something that we really resonate with as young adults. And you kind of touched on vaping already. So I kind of wanted to ask you, um, what should young people know? Because typically youth are the ones that are vaping more often than older adults. Right. What should young people know about vaping? Well, you know, the, the whole idea of an e-cigarette, namely, you know, well, let me back up. The way you have to learn, how does a cigarette work? Okay, you take some tobacco, you set it on fire, that... The, that generates an aerosol of ultrafine particles, the smoke, which carries little ultrafine droplets of nicotine down deep into your lungs. You breathe it in, it gets absorbed in your lungs, goes to your left heart and to your brain really fast, and you get a big blast of nicotine. And, and the act of burning the tobacco generates a lot of bad chemicals, a lot of the combustion products, a lot of carcinogens, a lot of oxidants, a lot of other bad things. The particles are bad. And so the idea of an e-cigarette uh, that the advocates of e-cigarettes claim is, well, you don't have a fire. You it's, it delivers an aerosol of ultrafine particles of nicotine, just like a cigarette does. But you do it by heating up a liquid. And, and because you don't have the combustion, you don't have the combustion products. And so it's better. That's the argument for e-cigarettes. And, you know, on its face, it's not ridiculous. You know, I mean, you are avoiding the combustion. The problem is, is that as we, you know, they've been out there now for 15 or 17 years. So people keep saying, well, they're new and we don't really know what they do, but they're actually now not that new and we know quite a lot about them. And it turns out that on many dimensions, they're just as bad as a cigarette. The, you're, you're breathing in ultrafine particles and ultrafine particles trigger inflammatory processes. They depress immune function. 
And it turns out that breathing in cigarette smoke, e-cigarette aerosol, marijuana smoke, and diesel exhaust are all about the same in terms of a lot of the bad things they do. Uh, they, they're, they, they're essentially equivalent in terms of uh, screwing up your blood vessels and your blood in ways which uh, um, increases your risk of developing and uh, eventually having a heart attack. They uh, increase asthma risk, probably not quite as much as a cigarette does, but you know, a cigarette is so hideously dangerous. It's like saying, well, okay, it's more like jumping out of the 40th story of the building than the than the 60th story, you know? I mean, it's still bad. Um, they're, uh, they're related to complications of pregnancy. There's even now evidence of cancer effects. And they're pretty much, I think, you know, effects on your on your gums, periodontal disease, or they're not that different from a cigarette. <laughs> and and so, you know, I think the main thing people should know, I think to a first approximation, it's just it's as bad as a cigarette. It's different than a cigarette. You aren't getting the combustion products, but you're getting a lot of propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin, a lot of the flavoring agents like cocoa oil or cinnamon oil or butter flavoring. Those things are all fine to eat, but if you aerosolize them and inhale them, they really tear up your lungs. And, uh, you know, I think that they're really bad. The second thing that you hear is that, well, it's a way to help people quit smoking. And we've done quite a lot of work on that. There, by this time, there's probably 50 or 70 studies looking at e-cigarettes and quitting. And what they show is that smokers who use e-cigarettes don't stop smoking any more than smokers who don't use e-cigarettes. And in fact, there are two studies that came out about six months ago, the two best studies done so far, where they followed people for three years. And they found that the smokers who used e-cigarettes had a harder time quitting. And we've done some work looking at kids in particular, which shows that the kids who use e-cigarettes as a way to quit smoking are less likely to quit smoking than kids who don't use e-cigarettes as a way to quit smoking. So the other, the two justifications for them is that they're not as dangerous as cigarettes. And, you know, may, while they may be a little bit less dangerous, they're still very dangerous. And as a way to quit smoking, that's just not the case. Um, the other thing about e-cigarettes is they're probably more addictive than cigarettes are. Because with a cigarette, there's a limit to how fast you can smoke it just because of the physics of the cigarette. You know, you just can't, you know, you, you, pull, you pull air in through it, you bring in oxygen, you heat up the, the coal at the end of the thing and, and you breathe it in. And then, you know, it just takes a certain amount of time to do that. And there's a finite number of puffs you can get out of a single cigarette. With e-cigarettes, there's no such controls. I mean, you can, you know, it depends how big the tank is, but a, uh, an e-cigarette can be the equivalent of a carton of cigarettes in terms of nicotine delivery. 
And, you know, it's basically impossible to get nicotine toxicity, to get acute nicotine poisoning from uh, a cigarette. You just can't smoke it fast enough. Whereas with an e-cigarette, people will sit there and suck down a huge amount of nicotine in a short time, enough to the point where they, they actually get seizures or other kinds of toxicity. And then the other thing is, because they're they're digital now, and this was the big breakthrough that Juul had, you can regulate the delivery of nicotine very finely in order to maximize the addictive potential. And the big, the uh, one of the big breakthroughs that Juul had was they realized that if they put a little bit of acid in the e-liquid, they could make the nicotine much easier to inhale. Nicotine, free-based nicotine is alkaline and it's hard to inhale. And if if you try to inhale too much nicotine, it causes it triggers a gag reflex. And what Juul found is that by putting a little bit of acid in the liquid, they can bring the pH, bring the acidity down more toward neutral. So it's easier to take in large quantities of nicotine. So, you know, I like when I've talked, I mean, I haven't seen anybody who's done a formal study of this yet, but in just talking to, to, to high school students and college students, you know, if you're talking about cigarettes, and there's actually quite a lot of data on cigarettes, it takes from the time you take your first puff until the time that you're fully addicted, a fully habituated smoker, that usually takes two or three years. Uh, most people, when they start smoking, smoke a cigarette every once in a while. They usually don't even smoke a whole cigarette. And it takes a long time for them to build up the tolerance to get really seriously addicted. With e-cigarettes, you know, and talking to people, that ha can happen in a couple of weeks. Again, because the because the they're so much more effective at delivering nicotine than a cigarette is. So they're they're just bad. And I I don't understand for the life of me why I mean there are some people in the public health community who, you know, are, you know, have a long history of good work in tobacco who still are just in love with these cigarettes. And you know, when they first came on the market, I actually withheld judgment for about three years. I kept getting asked to write something and I would get called and said, well, what do you think of the same question you're asked? And, and my response would be, we need, you know, it's not a crazy idea. We need some evidence. And what's happened is we've gotten more evidence. The more we learn, the more dangerous they look. And the FDA has completely dropped the ball in regulating them. I mean, they've made a total mess of it. And that's why these flavor bans like Proposition 31 are so important, because uh, what's happening is the federal government has dropped the ball. And this is allowing localities and states to fill the gap, which is the same thing that happened with clean indoor air laws. I mean, we still don't have national clean indoor air legislation. 
And the other thing is that, you know, when California blows away the tobacco companies, which I, I'm, I'm confident it will if, if the campaign can generate the resources it needs, um, you know, that'll send a huge message all over the world. I mean, the first time we beat the tobacco companies in a political campaign was in 1983 here in San Francisco. There were two state campaigns on Queen Adora, one in 1978 and one in 1980. And we just said, we just don't have enough money to run a state campaign against the tobacco companies. So we started doing local legislation. And here in San Francisco was, about, I think, the 33rd city in California to pass a law, but it got a huge amount of publicity. And the tobacco companies rolled in and forced a referendum, just as they did for the flavor ban and just as they're doing for the state flavor ban. And, you know, we managed to raise enough money uh, to beat them. And it was just, I remember being interviewed by Japanese television about well, what were the implications of San Francisco beating the tobacco companies. It was the first time that ever happened. Very exciting. Exciting time to be alive in tobacco control. <laughs> yeah, there's lots going on, you know. And the, the, the other thing that's amazing to me, and I tell people, you know, one advantage of being old is you have perspective. If you had come to me when I was your age, when I was just getting going in this stuff and said, you know, we would have smoke-free bars. We would even, you know, the big fight would be about smoking in casinos. So we would have flavor bans that the, the actual smoking prevalence was well below 10%. I'd have said that's crazy. You know, that's just impossible. And, you know, I think it's taken a while uh, but this is a great example of like grassroots democracy working because despite all of its lawyers and PR people and campaign contributions, you know, the people have beaten back the tobacco companies. And it's not just here, it's all over the world. Yeah, it's it's very like you can see how much work you and your colleagues and all the grassroots movements over the years, how much yeah. has changed. Because yeah, of it's really it's it's quite amazing, actually. <laughs> if As I said, if you'd have come to me in 1978 and and uh, I won't even ask how old you were in 1978. Or even your parents. The, <laughs> the, My the, mother was eight. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, at least she was born, you know. Uh, the, I mean, if you had said to me, this is where we're going to be in 2022, I'd have said that's crazy. There's no way we can get that far. And, you know, I think that's kind of one of the things driving the, the people in the health community who are so enthralled with these cigarettes is I think if you look at where they live, none of them live in places like California where we've had a huge amount of progress. And they just think, you, you know, you've got to you know, play ball with the tobacco companies. You know, they, the, the other thing that just drives, drives me crazy is they say, well, it's harm reduction, you know, and, and harm reduction I mean, that is a legitimate area in, in public health work. And I mean, I'm for reducing harm too, but the, the, 
the analog people usually use is needle exchanges. And, you know, needle exchanges are a good form of harm reduction because, you know, the, the fundamental problem you have is people are drug addicts but because they use dirty needles, they end up getting AIDS and other infectious diseases. And so if you at least allow them to do the drugs in ways where with clean needles, at least you're getting rid of the, the secondary part of it and maybe creating opportunities to get people into treatment. Well, making the argument that e-cigarettes are harm reduction would be like having drug cartels running needle exchanges and get, giving out, you know, mint flavored needles. I mean, it's just crazy. Very well said. Yeah, the people who are doing, you know, when you're talking about illicit drug harm reduction, it's not the drug or the, you know, it's not the drug cartels who are saying, okay, okay, you know, heroin addicts and fentanyl addicts, you know, we'll take care of you. We're, we're selling the stuff to you, but just come in and we'll take care of you. I mean, it's insane. And it's insane to even suggest that it could be happening that way. But that's what's going on with these cigarettes is it's the same companies that are selling the cigarettes. And another important urban myth about e-cigarettes. And, you know, and I was just reading a journal article where people said this is not you know, what everybody says is e-cigarettes were invented in about 2003 in China by a pharmacist named Han Lick, who was trying to develop a new innovative smoking cessation form. And, and the idea was to compete with the cigarette companies. It's, you know, it's technology disruption. Well, it's true that the Chinese pharmacist named Han Lick developed an e-cigarette in around 2003 to help people quit smoking. But actually, the first e-cigarettes were developed in about 1994 by Philip Morris. And BAT, British American Tobacco, who owns R.J. Reynolds now, they developed these products back in the early 90s. And if you go back and you can, this is all in the tobacco industry documents. And if you go back and look at the, at the, at the marketing research and the management discussions in the late 80s and early 90s, which led to these products, e-cigarettes and also heated tobacco products like Philip Morris Icos, their goal was not to help people quit smoking. And their goal was not harm reduction. They had realized that by that point, a lot of smokers were getting very health concerned and were quitting. And they were looking for a product that they could sell to health concerned smokers to keep them as customers. And that's why they developed e-cigarettes. And it happens they didn't take them to market in the mid 90s because of political concerns. They were afraid that it would trigger FDA regulation of cigarettes. So they didn't market them, but they had them. And in fact, the e-cigarette that Philip Morris developed after the FDA bill passed and Philip Morris saw a pathway to get them into the market, that would became what was called the Mark 10, which Philip Morris was selling all over the place until they bought 
jewel or bought a third of jewel and part of the purchase agreement was say they would stop selling mark 10 and compete stop competing with jewel oh my god that makes you know what <laughs> that makes a lot of sense i i just never knew it was it was quite like that i mean no wonder uh, wow yeah you just can't be too paranoid and no, you can't. You can't be too paranoid about this stuff. That's what gets me. Oh my god. The the I feel like tobacco control work, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but tobacco control stuff is like a hodgepodge of all of these other issues that that one can feel very strongly about. You know, uh I I personally like trust busting. I like environmental stuff. I like health stuff. You put it all together, and then boom, it's tobacco control because it's everywhere. R.J. Reynolds is, is like uh, it's like a an octopus with with its little slimy tentacles everywhere. Oh yeah, I mean one other paper we wrote uh, about the Tea Party. You know, you all know about the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the 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 Tea Party's creation myth is that it arose spontaneously, I think, in 2006 as a grassroots response to Obama, Obamacare. Sure. Okay. Well, that's not true. If you go back into the tobacco documents, the, tea, the origins of the Tea Party can be traced back to the tobacco companies when Bill Clinton was president and the, the Clinton tried to do health care reform and part of the package was to increase the cigarette tax as a way to help pay for health care reform. There were three things going on back there. The, the health care reform and the cigarette tax. David Kessler was trying to have the FDA regulate cigarettes and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration we're trying to regulate secondhand smoke indoors. In fact, I was very, I was their lead witness in that. And so the tobacco companies started building the or attempting to build these grassroots organizations, smokers' rights organizations, to try to be the grassroots counterpart to the work we were doing in promoting grassroots activism for clean indoor air. And there were a lot of twists and turns, but after a while, they teamed up with the Koch brothers who had created something called Citizens for a Sound Economy, which was the predecessor of today's Americans for Prosperity. And you can just trace the people and the organizations all the way back to the tobacco industry in the 80s. I think it was the 80s, maybe it was the 90s. And whenever Clinton was president. So, you know, they're, and we, we like published this paper and the Republicans in Congress just went wild. They like had the head of NIH in there and were yelling at him about it. And they forced an, a, 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 an investigation of NIH for funding the work we were doing. And that dragged on for a while, but in the end, they, the inspector general said that our work was fine. The NIH was was appropriate work for the NIH to fund, but these guys just you know that's what they do. 
I mean, they're not nice people. But nice people wouldn't be built, you know, making a product that was, you know, killing half a million people a year in the, just the United States and many, many more worldwide. Well, I, I think we, we've been on here for a while. We've been recording for about an hour now. So I guess you you tapped on to something very interesting. And I think once we get into this a bit more, uh, we can we can finish up. So I have two questions. Uh, first is an observation. So there, there's all these connections with the the radicalization of of a wing of the Republican Party into into the Tea Party, and a lot of that comes from trying to have the uh, astroturfing some kind of of opposition to the progress that that you've been making with tobacco control. Um, now. Young Adults Fighting Tobacco, our, our program is a nonpartisan one. However, that does not preclude us from having our own beliefs. We just can't endorse them. But um, how, what would your thoughts be on the further radicalization of the, the old Tea Party movement and all the corporate money in it, to then launching, then becoming the, the creature that it is now with, with uh, the election of Trump? and and everything now well first of all i mean tobacco is a nonpartisan issue and um we did some research years ago where we looked at the effect of campaign contributions on voting initially in the california legislature and then we've looked at other legislatures and some other people looked at congress and we we asked the question what role did political ideology play? And we found that the tobacco companies gave more money to Republicans than they did to Democrats, which is not surprising because the Republicans are generally more pro-business, but they also gave lots and lots of money to Democrats. <laughs> Willie Brown, who was the very powerful speaker of the assembly, a Democrat, got more campaign contributions than any other politician in the country, including Jesse Helms, who was the Republican kind of notorious pro-tobacco senator from uh, North Carolina at the time. But in doing this analysis, we, 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 we looked at the, at, the, at the pro and anti-tobacco behavior of these politicians, and we controlled for the attitudes of their constituents, which we got from some public opinion polling. And it turns out, at least back then, that Republican voters, not Republican politicians, but Republican voters were actually more anti-tobacco than Democratic voters were. Yeah. And, you know, we don't know why exactly, but they tended to be better educated and, and richer. It's a little, things have changed a bit. The parties um, today, the Republicans have picked up more of the less educated voters, which I find strange because the Republicans' main goal is protecting rich people. But the Republican voters were actually a little bit more anti-tobacco than the Democratic voters were back at the time we did this research. And if you look at the, if you look at where um, 
anti-tobacco legislation has passed, you know, if you look in conservative places, if you look at, at Republican political leaders, you know, they there, there are many of them who played a very important role in getting the legislation through. You know, Orrin Hatch, who was the very conservative Republican senator from Utah till he retired a few years ago, he co-authored uh, some of the important work that the federal government did. So the issue itself is not intrinsically partisan. But I think if you go back, I mean, if you want to read this paper we did about the Tea Party, it's called To Quarterback from Behind the Scenes, uh, which is a quote out of an industry document. The, the, you know, the tobacco industry played a big role in building the superstructure that, you know, that, that led to the Tea Party and the Trump, you know, took advantage of. There's no question about that. But, you know, Trump himself actually is anti-tobacco. You know, he actually had a radio show and somebody sent this thing to me where he like mentioned me by name and talked about what a great guy I was. <laughs> well, that, that that's the wonderful thing. Uh, you know, so he, he doesn't smoke. He doesn't like smoking. He smoked his, I think it was his brother died of smoking. Oh my so God. he personally is pretty anti-tobacco now. What, like with e-cigarettes, he started out, he was just going to get rid of them. But then I think the Republican uh, money people went to him and said, hey, you can't do that. We need these tobacco campaign contributions. Oh but, uh, but there's no question that the tobacco companies played a big role and not by themselves, but in building up what became this sort of anti-science, anti-intellectual movement, because um, the tobacco companies, you know, science is not their friend, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, and uh, you can also look at the whole global warming denial movement that the petrochemical industry and the fossil fuel companies built up. And it's a lot of the same people that the tobacco companies had. And in fact, there's a great movie, a documentary called Merchants of Doubt, which uh, you can see me with a suit on if you watch it. But it starts out talking about tobacco and then shows how that led right into the whole global warming denialism movement. And the the arguments, the structures, a lot of the same organizations and people that the tobacco companies used to try to fight against uh, the risk of smoking, the risk of secondhand smoke, then just also, you know, went over and worked for the oil companies. So there, there's no question in my mind that the tobacco companies played, you know, an important role in building up the kind of anti-intellectual, anti-science superstructure that is dominating a lot of, you know, the Trumpista movement and a lot of the Republican Party now. But historically, as I said, this has been a nonpartisan issue. Uh, and Republicans have kids, too. They care about their kids. Um, you know, the environmental movement, had, you know, was very strong in the Republican Party for a long time. The Clean Indoor, the Clean Air Act was a bi bipartisan piece of legislation. 
So, you know, I don't think there's anything intrinsic about a classic Republican philosophy that's pro-tobacco. But, you know, if you look at the at kind of the current dynamics, the, the tobacco companies played an important role in building the whole anti-science superstructure. And this whole idea of like go, really going after people that, that, you know, are saying things they don't like, you know, that, I mean, I've been the, personally been the subject of that. In 1994, when the Republicans took control of Congress under Newt Gingrich, they tried to slip a bill through directing NIH to defund me. You know, and we've it happened. A woman who was working for me at the time, sister, was an intern working in Congress, and uh, for Nancy Pelosi, and and she noticed in the budget, it didn't say to NIH you can't fund Stan Glantz. It said no money could be used to pay dumpy professors in San Francisco for working on tobacco. You know, so it was obvious who it was. Yeah. directed that it took a, it took eight months but we got rid of it and they you know they as i said if you just go google me you'll find out that i'm just the worst possible human being and you know the but isn't that a badge of honor <laughs> well you know it is at one level i'd rather they didn't do it but you know yeah it's just you know one of the things about tobacco and if you look at you know a lot of these other issues like global warming you know, when you're when you're a scientist, they they you know you're trained to like depersonalize things and to really focus on ideas and not take things personally, not attack people personally. But the tobacco companies and you know the the fossil fuel industry and these other chem, chemical companies, they know that it's people who make problems for them, individual people. And they go after them and try to neutralize them. And they, that's been my experience. And I mean, I have several other friends and colleagues who've been the object of similar kinds of attacks. And it's not fun, but, you know, it's not surprising given who they are and what the stakes are. It just, In fact, I used to... You know, I, I used to teach a class for the students and postdocs sort of me on like how to survive when you work on tobacco. And we spent a couple hours talking about, you know, you need to steel yourself to these attacks. It's not and try to build up a support network to get through them. And it's not fun, but it's it's they're just protecting their economic interests. Beautifully said that that's that was very inspiring um i think we're gonna have to wind it down from here okay well let me just say one last thing to Let's your audience do it. and you're that is you know these fights are hard you know you're up against a, a wealthy and uh unscrupulous you know uh group of individuals and organizations if they were if they were ethical people, they wouldn't be in the tobacco business killing people. You know, you have to have a certain uh, level of ethical compromise to even do it. And it's hard. And they have a lot of money. 
and they can buy friends or, or, or intimidate people. You have situations like we have with the e-cigarettes where people who should be on your side, you know, are misguided and, you know, or when you look at the tobacco waste issue, but aren't yet. And it's very frustrating. But I think if you take the long view on this, as I said earlier, if you had told me in 1978, these are the issues we'd be talking about and we would the reality that we're dealing with would be what it is today. I'd have told you, you're nuts. There's no way that can happen. And I think one of the things that your colleagues need, you need to keep that in mind, is that it's hard when you're in the middle of these fights. It's very frustrating. It, it, it can be depressing. But if you just keep moving forward, you know, you can win. And it, it, and I mean, there are millions and millions of people alive today and leading better lives today because of the work we did and are continuing to do. And, you know, that's worth a lot. You know, I, I mean, I'm 76 years old. A lot of my friends had midlife crises and it's like they're 50 or 55 and they're saying, oh my God, what, what have I done with my life and blah, blah, blah. Well, I can say that having done this work, I didn't have a midlife crisis. You know, I feel um, for all the ups and downs, it was, it's, it's been very satisfying. And, and, you know, I go on an airplane and nobody's smoking, you know, and, uh, I think that's the thing that can get you through all the frustrations of the day-to-day -day slog of dealing with these issues, is that you can make a big difference. Amazingly well said. Thank you so much, Dr. Glantz. Well, thank you for your interest. Yes, thank you so, so much. We really appreciate it. I feel like I learned so much uh, during this interview about the history of tobacco control and all of that, just your amazing life and your work. So we really appreciate you coming on here. And with that, I think that'll, that'll be it. Are, how are we feeling, Johnny? Okay. Well, I appreciate your interest. If there's anything else I can do to help, just let me know. Oh, don't, don't you worry. I have your email now. You're, okay. you're stuck with us. We would definitely love to have you back on, Dr. Glantz, because I know there's even, we just grazed the surface of all of your life and your knowledge. So we'd love to have you back on. Okay, we'll just let me know when. Will do, will do. Thank you all for listening to the Gen Green podcast powered by YAF. Today, we got to talk to Dr. Glantz about all of his amazing experience in tobacco control, and we were really excited to get to interview him. And as always, thank you all for listening, and we hope to see you again soon. And remember, YAF is always recruiting, so if you are interested, please email us. And we also have social media. Please follow us at Yaft Coalition. Thank you again.